Billions of people down through history have lived and died going about their mundane activities, blind to and ignorant of the real purpose of their existence, and then they died. Human philosophical and religious ideas have failed utterly to fill the void, and so if they think about it at all, people are left simply to wonder what is the purpose of human existence, or they are misled into false and empty ideas about the purpose of their being and ultimate destiny. The festivals of God, the festivals that God's word commands to be kept, all have deep spiritual significance, and their significance from the standpoint of time is not only historical, but also contemporary and prophetic. We read in Colossians 2, beginning with verse 16, Colossians 2 and verse 16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Again, verse 16, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon, which are a shadow of things to come. The festivals of God, the Sabbaths, plural, including the annual Sabbaths, are a shadow, or skia, as it is in the Greek, which means form, sketch, outline, pattern of things to come. And it also includes a new moon. There is one new moon which has prophetic significance, which is also a festival and an annual Sabbath. That's the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets, which is the new moon of the seventh month of the sacred calendar. And in the Greek, in verse 17, where it says, which are a shadow of things to come, it is in the present indicative, indicating that they are and continue to be an outline of things to come. Not that they were, but they are. The Sabbath, the new moon, the festival, these things are right now, today, an outline of things to come. In other words, they still have prophetic significance. And if people are not keeping these feasts, then they are not likely to understand what the prophetic significance is of the festivals, the new moon, the Sabbaths that God has commanded to be kept. The fact that Paul says the feasts outline the things to come shows that there is a chronological significance to their meaning and that it relates to events that God has planned and predicted and advanced. Now, the ultimate purpose of every human being, according to Scripture, is ultimately to be born into the family of God as one of his children. That's the purpose for which we were created. We were created to share the divine nature of God, to share God's life, to share eternal life, which is his life. His life is not temporary. It's not a fleshly uh, life that is temporary and lasts only for a short time as our lives to do in the flesh but his life is eternal he is an eternal being there's no beginning no end to his existence to his life and he is his purpose in creating us is to share that eternal life with us to grant that same eternal life to us in his divine family. That's why he created human beings. As we read in John 1, verse 12, John 1 and verse 12, as many as received him, speaking of Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And who were born does not, uh, in the Greek actually is not in the past tense, it's in Aroist, which means uh, who are born at some point in time. Not necessarily were born, but who are born at some point, not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And so this is uh, this this birth that it's, it's speaking of is something different from the ordinary fleshly birth that each human being uh, goes through to come into existence as a uh, baby, a child, and yet it's in a sense it's uh, it's like that, only it is we are born as children of God rather than children of physical fleshly parents. And we share God's nature. Just as as a human being is born, the human being shares the nature of the parent who gave birth to it as well as the father. And so when we are born as children of God, we share God's nature not human nature, not the fleshly nature of human beings, but the God nature, which is a different type of nature. It's divine nature. We read in John 3 and verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the must, the son of, uh, must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God life does not end. The life that we are given when we are born of God is eternal life. It is a life that never ends. And it's quantitatively and qualitatively different from the carnal life of human beings, the fleshly life that we have as, as flesh and blood human beings. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, 2 Peter 1 verse 3, it says, His divine power, that is God's divine power, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Those partakers of the divine nature, not just human fleshly nature, but it says we are to become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And today, I want to discuss some of the prophetic significance of the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, there's only a limited proportion of its prophetic significance that can be covered in a single sermon because there is a vast, there are a vast uh, range of, uh, of, of subjects that one could speak on relating to the prophetic significance of this feast. So what I will be covering today is by no means everything having to do with the significance of the feast from a prophetic standpoint and there are other features as well as I mentioned earlier that have to do with its meaning for us here and now as well as its historical meaning and they all sort of merge together and relate one to another but uh, I want to discuss some specific features of the prophetic significance of the feast for this particular sermon and uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is the sixth of seven annual festivals of God. Like the other festivals, it has multifaceted significance for the future of mankind and the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. And some of this we will hope to cover today. The Bible tells us that the day is coming when God will intervene in the affairs of mankind to save the earth from utter destruction. 
and the governments of mankind will be replaced by the reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, by his government. Matthew 24 and verse 21. Matthew 24 and verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would, uh, would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So, we are approaching a period the Bible prophesies such as, as has never occurred in the, his, the entire history of the earth. It is a period of tribulation. So severe that nothing comparable to it has ever occurred prior to that time nor will ever occur again. And it is of such, uh, of such severity that it says no flesh would be saved. All life would be destroyed on the earth, evidently, unless Jesus intervened to shorten that time, to step in to save humanity from utter destruction. And... In, 11, in Revelation 11 and verse 15, it tells us of that time of intervention. The seventh angel sounded, Revelation 11:15, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. This is looking forward to the time of Christ's intervention when the kingdoms of this world, all the governments of this world, will be superseded by the government of God. It will be a world-ruling government that will replace all of the governments of this earth. And this is prophesied a number of places in the Bible, one of them in Daniel 2, verse 44. Daniel 2, verse 44, in the days of these kings, and this is speaking of a series of Gentile kingdoms, prophesied in the book of uh, Daniel leading up to the time of Jesus Christ from the time of Daniel who was a captive in, uh, in the uh, Chaldean Empire of Nebuchadnezzar which was the first of the, the Gentile kingdoms that were being discussed in this series of uh, worldwide or uh, uh, kingdoms, Gentile kingdoms of worldwide influence and then it brings us all the way from there up to the point of Christ's coming in that prophecy in Daniel 2. And in the last uh, part of that prophecy, it speaks of ten kings who will, who will exist at that time in, who will uh, have power that they will share, as other prophecies tell us, with uh, a an overall, you might say, king or ruler or figurehead who will have a, a tremendous influence and power at the end of the age and who will be responsible for uh, leading a massive rebellion against God at that time. And it says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Ever. Uh, so, the kingdom that Jesus Christ is going to set up will destroy those previous kingdoms and they're sort of remnants of those in the final kingdom. They all sort of flow together in certain respects. But Jesus Christ is going to destroy them. And in Daniel 7 and verse 13, Daniel 7 and verse 13, it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, this is a title for Jesus Christ, one of his titles was the Son of Man, which is a title given to the Messiah in the book of Daniel. And 
Jesus referred to himself sometimes by that title. But in this particular context, it implies the Messiah. And it says, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. So this is not an ordinary human being. It says he came to the Ancient of Days. And this is a reference to the Godhead, God the Father in this case. And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So Jesus Christ is going to come to intervene to save mankind from utter destruction at the end of this age and he's going to establish a kingdom on this earth and that kingdom will continue forever and it will never be it will never be destroyed it will never be defeated it will never perish God's government is going to be established over the earth and all nations will become subject to the rulership of Jesus Christ. Now when Jesus Christ returns to the earth, the saints, that is those who have been converted in this age, who have, been, who have repented of their sins, been baptized, have received the Holy Spirit, have remained faithful to God, and overcome those who have lived prior to Christ's coming and done these things will be resurrected or changed if still alive at that time changed from a fleshly nature to spirit they will not be resurrected those resurrected at that time will not be resurrected back to a physical fleshly life but they will be resurrected just as Jesus Christ was when he was resurrected from the dead after his crucifixion and he was resurrected to immortality as a spirit being as he had been before his uh, birth as a flesh and blood human being and so they will be resurrected having that same nature and likeness and they will reign with Jesus Christ under his authority for a thousand years and beyond. And we read about it in Daniel 7, verse 27. The kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. Notice that all dominions shall serve and obey Jesus Christ. And the kingdom will be given to the people, the saints, under Jesus Christ, serving under his authority. This is further described in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation 20 and verse 4, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. So this does not imply necessarily that only those who are martyred or beheaded will be in that resurrection. Those will be included. But those who have withstood the influence of demon the demonic satanic power that powers that uh, rule this earth who have resisted and overcome that influence through faith in Jesus Christ through having the Holy Spirit through obedience 
to God in the face of trials and persecution, who have overcome, as other uh, scriptures tell us, they will be a part of that resurrection. And we are all to be living our lives as living sacrifices. We're to be mortifying the flesh. We are to be putting to death the deeds of the flesh. So in that sense, we're all to be martyrs. And we are to be living sacrifices and be willing to give our lives for the sake of Christ if necessary. Jesus said, if you're not, if you're not willing to give your own life also to serve me, you are not worthy of me. So, we who are, uh, who have done that, who have overcome, who have remained faithful to the end, will be in that first resurrection. And those who are there will be priests of God, meaning they will be teaching, that was the primary, it is the primary job of a priest under the law, the the priests of God, their primary role was to teach the people God's way, His commandments, His way of life. They'll be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with Him. They will have uh, positions of, uh, of, of uh, authority in the government. They will have responsibilities a role to play in governing the earth under Jesus Christ. About 2,000 years ago, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, came to minister to the people of Israel and to give His life and payment for the sins of mankind so that they might have salvation. Shortly after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, about 40 years later, in 70 A.D., or CE is it some the common era sometimes it's referred to the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and this was again about uh, 40 years after Jesus was crucified when Jesus Christ returns to establish his reign the temple of God in Jerusalem will be restored as his first coming was followed by the destruction of the temple, when he returns, the temple is going to be restored. And it's a possibility that the temple may be at least partially restored just prior to his coming. There are scriptures that indicate that possibility. At near or at the time of Christ's coming, the topography of much of the earth will be drastically changed. We read in Revelation, in Revelation 6, verse 12, it says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as fig drops, and as late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up in every mountain and the island was moved out of its place. So notice what it says here. It says the, uh, uh, there, there, there are going to be cataclysmic events affecting the earth. The earth will evidently be moved or shaken out of its orbit. Uh, it will look from the, earth, from the perspective of the earth that the stars are falling to the earth. This implies a violent shaking of the earth. Whereas you look up into the heavens, it will seem that the stars are literally falling from the sky. And other scriptures show that the earth will reel to and fro like a drunken man. And then it says, the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. These are massive earthquakes and changes 
in the uh, surface of the earth, in the earth's mantle, that will affect its topography. And the area surrounding Jerusalem today consists largely of hills and mountains comparable to the Appalachian Mountains of the United States. But that area around Jerusalem will be turned into a plain, we're told, and Jerusalem will be increased in elevation. Zechariah 14 and verse 10, Zechariah 14 and verse 10, all the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate from the tower of Hanael to the king's wine presses. And the book of Ezekiel describes a new physical temple which will be built in Jerusalem and in which Jesus Christ will dwell. The throne of Jesus Christ will be in that temple and he will dwell there in the midst of the children of Israel. We read in Ezekiel 43, Ezekiel 43 and verse 4, the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name they nor their kings by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places, when they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorstep by my doorstep with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore I have consumed them in my anger. And this was written, this prophecy was written after the uh, temple in, the, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed at that particular time. And uh, is speaking of a future temple, one to come after Christ's return to this earth in glory and power. And he goes on to say, now let them put their harlotry in the carcasses of their kings far away from me and I will dwell in their midst forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. And a fairly detailed description of the temple of the millennium and the ordinances of the temple mentioned here is given in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 47. The Hebrew word for tabernacle means a dwelling place. And Jesus Christ is coming back to the earth to dwell. Not only in spirit, but also bodily among his people which ultimately includes all human beings who come to the true faith. We're told also that ultimately God the Father will come to the earth to tabernacle or to dwell with mankind, with the family of regenerated human beings made in the likeness of God sharing the divine nature and God will dwell with them forever. Revelation 21, beginning with verse 1, Revelation 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. 
God will dwell with them and he will be their God. So it will be for, for eternity. And this latter prophecy will be fulfilled sometime after the millennium. Jesus Christ will be dwelling there during the millennium, but this is speaking of a time following the millennium, the thousand year period. And during that millennial period, Jesus Christ will dwell with mankind on his throne in Jerusalem from the beginning of that period. When Jesus Christ returns, the great tribulation that we read about earlier will have been in place for three and a half years. And during that period of time, the physical descendants of Israel will have been in captivity to other nations. And there are a number of scriptures that tell us about that captivity. And we're also told that the true church of God will be persecuted during that time and many will be martyred. We read about that in Revelation chapter 6 and also Revelation chapter 12. So it will not only be the people of Israel and in Scripture it's also referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble, referring to the descendants of Jacob or Israel because they will be the ones on whom this tribulation will fall most heavily, but also it will be a time of trouble for the church of God. And many people who are members of the church of God will be martyred during that period of tribulation. Immediately upon his return, Jesus Christ will begin the work of freeing those captives still remaining alive those uh, captives who are of the people of Israel, and he will be returning them to their homeland in Palestine, which will no longer be called Palestine, but it will be called Israel. And the nations, the nations of the earth will have been gathered to battle at and around Jerusalem at the time of Christ's coming. Their armies will be destroyed. But there will be some who are not killed in those battles and the remnant will return to their homelands to tell the others what they had seen and what happened as God's power was displayed. And the nations of the earth will begin giving up their captives and in some cases bringing them to Israel. We read about that in Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, beginning in verse 18, it shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. I will gather all nations and tongues and they will see my glory. They will see His glory when He returns to the earth. And I will set a sign among them and those among them who escape those who escape from this slaughter of these armies, I will send to the nations to Tarshish and Pul and Lud, who draw the bow and Tubal and Javan to the coastlands afar off who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all the nations, on horses and in chariots and in litters, and on mules and camels, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a vessel, or a clean vessel, to the house of the Lord. Jeremiah 16, verse 14, Jeremiah 16, verse 14, says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land which I gave to their fathers. Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. 
Jeremiah 23 and verse 3. Jeremiah 23 beginning in verse 3. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I've driven them and will bring them back to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set shepherds over them who will feed them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Speaking of Jesus Christ himself, in his days Judah shall be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Speaking of Jesus Christ, ruling on his throne. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I've driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 11. Ezekiel 34, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day that he is among his scattered sheep. So I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them to their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture, and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. And there they shall lie down in a good fold, and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost, and bring that back that which was driven away bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment going on in Ezekiel 34 beginning in verse 23 Ezekiel 34 verse 23 I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them my servant David he shall feed them and be their shepherd so David will be resurrected and under Jesus Christ he will be ruling over all of the tribes of Israel and I the Lord will be their God and my servant David a prince among them I the Lord have spoken and I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods and I will make them in the places all around my hill a blessing And I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land and they shall know that I am the Lord. When I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. And they shall no longer be a prey for the nations nor shall beasts of the land devour them but they shall dwell safely and no one shall make them afraid. So, this is among the things that are prophesied to happen after Jesus Christ returns, that he will repatriate the captives of Israel to their homeland and begin to bless them as they learn to acknowledge the true God and have been humbled will be repentant and God will teach them His ways, His laws, and write them in their hearts and minds. The reason the peoples of Israel will be in captivity when Jesus Christ returns is because of their refusal, their adamant and persistent refusal to obey His commandments. Israel, the people of Israel, the people descended from Jacob, which includes a vast number of people, and a number of modern nations actually. But those people have throughout most of their history, going back to ancient times, shown obstinate and persistent refusal to obey God, beginning with when they were in the wilderness. And even before that actually, but 
But even though God had freed them from Egypt and, and led them through the wilderness, they persistently refused to obey Him to the point that the entire generation, nearly all of them, perished in the wilderness because of their rebellion and disobedience. And they continued as a people down through the years, the centuries, to rebel and reject and disobey God, even though God witnessed to them constantly, pleaded with them through His prophets and through the judges, the priests, and so forth, the people that He had sent to witness to them, to teach them His ways. He pleaded with the people of Israel to repent, to obey Him, promising to bless them. And He did bless them. He gave them an inheritance. He showed them by many signs who was the true God, and yet they persisted in their rebellion and disobedience. In our latter day, just as God promised Abraham, God has blessed the peoples descended from Jacob with an abundance such as no other peoples have ever enjoyed. And he, he did that because not because they were obedient, but because Abraham obeyed God. And so God gave those promises to Abraham concerning his descendants in the latter days. And the modern descendants of Israel are, are located primarily in the British Isles and other British descended nations such as Australia and New Zealand. Also, many of those whose ancestors migrated to the United States from Britain and Western Europe are among the people who are descendants of Israel and some Western European and Northwest European peoples also are included in his descendants physically. And those peoples have been blessed far above most other people of the earth even though some of those blessings have spilled over into other nations. And actually the whole world has been blessed through the blessings that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. But we in this generation, this period that we've lived our lives, have been recipients of blessings and abundance such as no other people ever in all of history. We have conveniences, blessings that people could not have imagined even as much as a century or two ago, much less before that. We read in Genesis 22 and verse 15, Genesis 22 and verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and the angel of the Lord here is actually God Himself, and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. In other words, they would be an innumerable multitude. Millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people. And as you look at the history of Israel and her migrations, the people descended from Israel, they have over, over the centuries amounted to hundreds of millions of people. Not only today, but in past times as well. And they have wandered over the face of the earth in virtually every direction, but eventually migrated westward into the places I mentioned earlier. And they are literally an innumerable multitude. There's no way we can estimate accurately the number of those descendants over the centuries. It says, Your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Notice it was because Abraham obeyed his voice. The birthright promises were passed on to Abraham's son Isaac. God appeared to Isaac and told him in Genesis 26 and verse 4, 
Genesis 26 and verse 4, I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Again, notice the reason for these blessings. Abraham obeyed God. He was not perfect, as we read. Like every human being, he had his weak moments. But he was counted faithful because he believed God and he was obedient to God despite his human weaknesses and failures. God is a merciful God. He's not going to condemn us because we make an occasional mistake in a time of weakness. And the record of Scripture shows us that. But we must strive to obey God to overcome just as Abraham did and remain faithful. And when we do fail, we need to acknowledge our sins and repent. In the early years of the existence of the United States and also in Britain at the same time, there was a moral fabric largely based on respect for the Bible and the Ten Commandments. And if you read the uh, statements of many of the uh, early fathers of the nation, the men who founded the nation, the United States of America, you find that they had a very high regard and profound respect by and large for the Scriptures. Not that they all necessarily accepted every word of the Bible as inspired, although some of them did. But they still had a respect for Scripture and the commandments found in the Bible. But the populations of those countries were not converted to true biblical Christianity despite their respect for the Bible and the laws of Scripture. As Paul wrote in Romans 11, Israel has throughout, pretty much throughout her history, leading up to this time, been blinded in part not totally blinded, but blinded in part throughout this period. And some eras of, of, of the people of uh, Israel, the descendants of Jacob, have been blinded more than at other times. And we're in an era now where people are, are uh, will, willfully rejecting God's commandments and vast numbers of people in our countries now are totally hostile to the very idea of Christianity, of the Bible, of any commandments that they might be required to obey. That was not true during the early era at the time that our country was founded, the United States. It was not true during the Victorian era in Britain in the, in the 19th century. It's true today. The popular Christianity, however, was leavened with false teachings, with compromises, with idolatry, and many unbiblical practices. Nevertheless, many were sincere in their beliefs, and there was a general respect in the culture for, a, for the moral precepts laid down in Scripture, even though they were often violated. Today, that significant though flawed moral fabric is largely disintegrated. Licentious sex, lying, fraud, blasphemy, the murder of innocent children, and other evils have become endemic and largely accepted in our amoral society, which is largely ignorant of God and hostile to His laws. The sinful condition into which the Israelite nations have plunged was prophesied in the pages of the Bible. For our sins, God will punish our nation with curses and is in fact already doing so. And ultimately, that punishment will include our losing our inheritance and a national captivity if we do not repent. 
And those punishments will be designed to help our peoples to learn to appreciate the gravity of sin and eventually to bring them to repentance. Unfortunately, it appears it will require that to bring the people to repentance. And when Jesus Christ returns, as we have discussed, he will bring the captives home. And as he does so, they will be taught true repentance and they will begin to learn God's ways. In Ezekiel 20 and verse 33, As I live the Lord, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face. Just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will plead my case with you, says the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge the rebels from among you, and those who transgress against me, and I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel, then you will know that I am the Lord. So God is going to sift out the remaining rebels from among the people brought out of captivity, and only those who show a willingness to repent will be ultimately brought back into Israel to settle there. Going on in verse 41 of Ezekiel 20, it says, I will accept you as a sweet aroma when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will be hallowed in you before the Gentiles. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I mentioned in a sermon not long ago, a recent survey where the majority of uh, the uh, so-called millennials in our country, these people that were surveyed, don't know and don't care if God actually exists. They don't, they don't know who God is. They don't even know, according to their own testimony, that there is a God. And those who, many of those who think they know God don't know the true God. They don't know who God really is. They have a distorted and false idea of of who the God of the Bible is. But then there will be no doubt. You shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for which I raised my hand in an oath to give to your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all your doings with which you were defiled, and you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight because of all the evils that you have committed. Now, if you're wondering if God notices all the evil that is going on in the world today, you might sometimes wonder, does God see what's going on? Yes, He does. But He is allowing these things to occur to teach mankind some very profound lessons. And God is determined in His wisdom that He's going to let human beings go to the end of their rope doing things their own way. And they're going to come to the point where, as we read earlier, all flesh would be threatened with utter destruction except for the intervention of God. When these people come out of captivity and their sins are exposed, they will loathe themselves for what they've done. And then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, says the Lord God. God is a merciful God. If he dealt with us, according to what we deserve, we would perish. The whole earth would be destroyed and all human beings would die. That would be the end of them, but that's not how God is going to deal with us. He is going to 
save Israel out of their captivity. He's going to forgive them and teach them how to live according to his way, according to righteousness. And we read about that in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Zechariah 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve him as one who grieves for a firstborn. Yes, it was the people of Israel who were uh, urging the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the very people that God had chosen as his special people and blessed them and uh, made his word known to them in ways that the other nations did not know. They had advantages other nations did not have. And yet it was they who led the way in condemning Christ and the Gentiles also had their part to play in his crucifixion and in in effect all mankind crucified Christ because he died for the sins of all mankind. We, human beings, are guilty of his death and uh, human beings will look on God and they will mourn and grieve for what they have done. What they have done against God and to God. Zechariah 13 verse 1, Zechariah 13 verse 1. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for, and for sin and uncleanness. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that it will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. Yes, our land is full of unclean spirits and idolatry. And God's going to clean it up. Having chastised Israel and brought the nation to repentance, God will pour out his spirit upon them as he further instructs them and they will enter into a new covenant relationship with God and be obedient to his ways. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The main difference between the old and new covenants is that under the old covenant, the laws were written on tablets of stone, but they were not written in the hearts and minds of most of the people. But in, under the new covenant, the people are going to be required to be converted. Under the old covenant, the people of Israel were not required to be converted to be a part of the covenant, and most of them never were converted. But the people under the new covenant must be converted. They must repent. They must learn to seek God. And they will have that law written in their hearts and minds or they won't be part of that covenant. But they will be a part of it because Jesus Christ is going to be right there along with those resurrected saints who were converted in this age and they will be teaching and guiding the people. They will no longer be deceived by Satan the devil and they will be taught how to obey, how to overcome, how to live God's way of life. And it says, no more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. They will have a 
personal knowledge of Jesus Christ because Christ will be dwelling in them through his spirit. Isaiah 59 and verse 20. Isaiah 59 and verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Notice they will turn from transgression. They will repent, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring, but uh, nor out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The Feast of Tabernacles has profound significance not only for the future of the descendants of Jacob, but for all of mankind. It points to a new age, a new world where righteousness dwells. 